Well, aside from the Bible in the New Testament, there are a few early documents that help us learn a little bit about what Christians were like in the first centuries after Jesus died and rose again. One of the most moving and interesting stories, in my opinion, is the story of a man named Polycarp, who was, we believe, I think, discipled by John the Baptist. So very close to the connection of Jesus, just a few generations removed. And Polycarp was killed for his faith, and there's a little excerpt in early church history that explains how this went about. I want to read this excerpt to you. Now, when Polycarp entered the arena and was brought before the pro-council, who asked him, are you the Polycarp? He says, yes. He admitted. He tried to persuade him then, the proconsul to deny his faith and told him to say this, Swear by the great genius of Caesar, repent and say, Away with the atheists. But when the proconsul pressed him and said, Take the oath and let go of Christ, revile him, Polycarp said, For eighty and six years have I been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? You know, there's a lot of things we could pull from this short excerpt in early church history. But one of them is this strange statement by the proconsul that he would tell Polycarp, away with who? The atheists. Here in early church history, as we can find in several other documents, this is just one example, Roman soldiers called Christians atheists. I don't know about you, but does that sound strange? Is that a, a bit of a shock? Like, Christians? No, no, no. We know what atheists are. They don't believe in God. Christians believe in God. But you see, Christianity was so radically different because of the teachings of Jesus that it was on par with what the Romans thought would be denial of God and the gods they worshipped. So they called them atheists. Away with the Christians. Away with the atheists is what he was telling Polycarp to confess in front of this great arena of people shortly before he was, in fact, killed to death for his faith. One historian has said it this way, there are several points that stand out from this account of Polycarp. First, it is clear that the trial and execution of Christians has now become a matter of regular form, for in fact, you can see the established procedures and standards for what Christians should do to escape the punishment of death as well as certain fixed assumptions that we can see about what they thought Christianity was. In particular, it was assumed that Christians were a member of some kind of cult because they didn't believe in the normal pagan gods, and so therefore, many of them were charged for being atheists. In fact, it wasn't just the Christians who were called atheists by the Romans. Even Jews were called atheists for the fact that they had no pagan god set up inside of their temple when they worshipped and made sacrifices. You see, to the Romans, Jews and Christians alike, for denying the normal manner of temple and sacrifice and idol inside of the temple, they were going so far from the normal stream of religious thought that they were both called atheists. But what's interesting about Polycarp's death was that not just the Romans rejected the Christians, 
But in fact, we find later on in the same account that it was the Jews who joined the Romans in also wanting Polycarp dead. Do you know why? Do you know why the early Christians were called atheists and rejected by the Jews in the first century? Do you know what the teaching and beliefs of Christianity were in the early first centuries that would cause this sort of reaction? both to Romans, who worshipped several different pagan gods, and even Jews, who worshipped Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament Scriptures. I want to answer this question in a series of three messages today and the next two weeks. What we're doing now is a series within a series. We're going to continue studying the book of Hebrews, and in chapters 8, 9, and 10, We're going to look where we left off last week in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to study a mini-series that I'm going to call The End of Religion. What are three basic beliefs in the early church that we can see here in the book of Hebrews that led to people calling them atheists, persecution, and the rejection from both Romans and Jews? So this is an outline not for this morning's message, but really for the next few weeks to come if any of you would like to come back and hear more. Today, we will look at the end of the temple. Next week, we will look at the end of the sacrificial system. And then finally, if Lord willing, we have life and we're all gathered together, two weeks from now, we will look at the end of the law, the old covenant. So the end of the temple, the end of the sacrificial system, and the end of the old covenant law. This morning, we're going to look at our attention in chapter 8, 9, and 10, mostly just in 8 and 9, at a few different statements about the beliefs of early Christians and what it meant that Jesus had died on a cross, risen from the dead three days later bodily, appeared to hundreds of people, and then 40 days later ascended into heaven. How is that truth doing away with religion, both the religion of Jews and Romans? Well, look at me, if you would, in your Bibles, in the book of Hebrews, to Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. If you're using these black Bibles, the book of Hebrews can be found on page 1005. And when I refer to the chapter number, I mean the larger number in bold, and the verses are the smaller numbers after that. By the way, if for whatever reason you don't own a Bible and you want to take the black ones home and read them, we would encourage you to read 8, 9, and 10 these next few weeks at home so you can further understand God's Word. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were here on earth, he would not be a priest at all since since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you. On the mountain. Now, one of the reasons why I decided to take this into a mini-series is because this truth that we just read is going to be repeated two more times in the next two chapters. And in other words, chapters 8 through 10 form a little subsection in the book of Hebrews, and there's really, in 
my reading of it, three main points, three main ideas that I just said to you. The end of the temple, the end of the sacrificial system, and the end of the old covenant law. So this week, as we look at the end of the temple, I want you to see that this is repeated in chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. Turn a page, if you need to, to chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. He's going to say almost the exact same thing in the flow of this section here. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And then drop your eyes down to chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ has entered, not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Do you see the just striking similarities in language and idea here that in chapter 8 and 9, he's going to repeat himself. So instead of repeating myself and look at 8 and then look at 9 and then look at 10, I figured let's break it up this way. So first, let's see the main point that he is saying. That's chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. You'll see right in the first few verses of chapter 8. Now, what I've been trying to say all along is this. This is the main point, I don't think necessarily, of the whole book, although I think it is a major point of the book. I think he's more trying to say this is the point that I've been trying to say in this section of the book. A lot of that is if you look at the textual grammatical reasons, you can see that he is trying to refer to what he has just said, which if you look up in chapter 7, verse 26, it says in chapter 7, verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And he goes on to explain what the priests were like in the Old Testament and how Jesus is different in the New. And so from that flow of thought, some translations even say in verse 26 of chapter 7, we need, it's, it's fitting, we need a priest that's like this Jesus. And so he says in chapter 8, verse 1, now this is the point I'm trying to say. We have such a high priest. We need a priest like this, and friends, we have in Jesus a priest who meets all of those requirements. What I'm trying to say is we have Jesus, and he is everything. He is the one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, which is really similar to chapter 1, verse 3. If you remember earlier in our series in Hebrews, it says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, and after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Which is why some think maybe this is one of the main points he has for the whole book. Now this is the main point. Jesus Christ made purifications of sins by dying on a cross. Rose again from the dead. Ascended into heaven. And now he sits at the right hand of the throne of God. I like the way that he uses the word majesty. What a sign of symbol and symbol for us of authority. I know that for us we're... We're used to presidential elections and not kings and queens, but there's, there's such a royal enthronement language here about how Jesus is a king who sits at the right hand. And don't get in your minds right now as you think of that language. 
literally Jesus sitting down and there's a throne and then he's sitting next to it. Now, that could be true, but it seems more like Jesus Christ in the presence of God Almighty, where God dwells in heaven, he has all rights, all authority, all power, because he is not just a son separated from the Father as two different beings. They are one in the same. He is the exact imprint of very God of gods. That's the language we saw in chapter 1, verse 3 that I just read to you. Get the picture of this, if you don't remember me explaining this earlier. Think of me pouring on this pulpit a big pool of wet, hot wax. That pool of wax has then a large stamp that's sealed and kind of makes an imprint or an indentation. Think old school sending a letter in the mail and you would send it to not, I guess, the mail, real old school, like carrier pigeon, I don't know, something old where you'd seal it with wax and put your stamp of approval on it, some official document. The language in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 is that Jesus Christ is the exact imprint, and the word there is stamp, like stamp in wet wax. And so that when you see that imprint seal, it's like all of Jesus is the exact expression and picture of what God is and like. And he has then all authority as like a a royal messenger having the stamp and approval of King Jesus, King God Almighty on the throne. Jesus has all of that royal power. He's at the right hand. That's the picture that's being given here, that Jesus is in heaven with all authority, seated at the right hand of God. Let's just ask this question. What does it mean that Jesus is in heaven now? Where do you think Jesus is? Because the last part of the story that we know is that Jesus was a man, a real man, walking on the earth, eating fish, drinking, talking, bleeding, dying, coming back from the dead, and then showing to himself that he still eats fish, drinks, lives, breathes, talks. And then he just mysteriously ascended up into the clouds. Where did he go? Like, where is Jesus Christ right now, floating in clouds somewhere? Friends, this is why last year, around this time, we spent three, or was it, four or five weeks thinking through, what is heaven? Because we're, we're going to miss the main point of what he's trying to say here if you think that that's what Jesus is doing. That heaven is just some sort of ethereal, floaty place up in the clouds, and there Jesus is hopping around on clouds. That's not what heaven is. Heaven is God's space. His sacred space. So if we think big picture of how the whole Bible works, we see that the Bible says that there is God's space and there is earth and man's space. There's heaven and earth. And in the beginning, God had his space and our space come together in Genesis 1 and 2. It was the same space. We shared space with God. We read in Genesis chapter 3 that God walked in the coolness of the day with Adam they were together they shared space together they weren't separated but we saw that right after that statement the curse of sin separated drastically cosmically god's space and man's space now they're alienated from one another they are divided you saw at the end of chapter three of the book of genesis that adam and eve were what they were kicked out of the garden because the garden was god's sacred space later in the book of exodus 
in the storyline of the Bible, God will tell Moses, which is quoted here in verse 5, that the temple would serve as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. There Moses went up to the top of Mount Sinai and got special instructions for how God's sacred space would then come back, not fully, not completely, and come back together like Genesis 1 and 2, but a glimpse of it. Think a little, a, a little dot. That here heaven, God's space, through the temple, will have now a small sampling of God's space here on earth. That's what the temple was all about. And that is what we see described here in Hebrews chapter 8, 5. That the temple was a copy. It was a shadow. It was just a little, a little taste, a sample of God's space being on earth in our space. But something amazing happens when we fast forward to the New Testament. Right away, we meet a man named Jesus. And in John chapter 1, it says, This Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he created everything. But this Jesus became flesh. This word became flesh. And this word, Jesus Christ, he tabernacled. It's the same word here that you see in Hebrews chapter 8. This tent, this tabernacle, this opportunity for God's space and earth space to share. Jesus now is replacing that temple and he's walking around and he's like a little temple walking around. He is in fact God's space because he is God. So what we see throughout the Bible is that God and heaven, earth and mankind are separated, but God is continually sending little images to our space. And he is now sharing a little space with us in the temple and in the person of Jesus. And we're never allowed to go in and hang out in heaven's space and just sit there, live there, dwell in the space that God has made here on earth. Remember, this is what we've been looking at throughout the book of Hebrews. What do the priests do? Well, they go in God's space once a year and only for a short time. They go in, they go out, they go in, they go out. This is not earth and heaven coming together. This is a little taste, a little sample, a little shadow of what is to come. Heaven finally gets a little bit of earth when Jesus ascends to heaven. This is one of the most interesting things. If you're following so far, you realize that, okay, heaven and earth are separated. Heaven has now had little samplings in the temple and in the person of Jesus here on earth. But now there's a sample of earth in heaven. Because when Jesus dies, rises again from the dead, and ascends, he's still a man. He still is earthly. He is still a part of our world. And so now he takes a part of our world and takes it into heaven. You see what's happening here? When that happens, this does away with the need for a temple. And now we have access into God's space. And furthermore, we see the language that Jesus is sitting. He is dwelling. He is permanently remaining in God's space as a representative of earth's space forever. That's what we read just now in chapter 9 when it says that he is in the heavenly tent once and for all. He entered it once. He will stay there forever. He is now bringing heaven and earth 
back together. And when that happens, that means the little sample of the temple, you don't need it anymore. Why would you need a little sampling of heaven when you can have the whole thing through the access that Jesus provides for us in his ascension into heaven? It would be like a loved one, a family member, someone, you being separated from them for quite some distance, some, some space that separates you, maybe a week or two or a month of vacation and business trip, you name it. And now with modern technology, you have the great privilege of being able to FaceTime and Skype and see them. It's wonderful, isn't it? Have, have you experienced the wonderful blessings of Skype and FaceTime and, and just pulling out your phone and saying, I can see my brother who lives in Indonesia as a missionary, I can see him on my phone, on a computer screen. How awesome is this? Well, let's say my brother comes home and stays home. How foolish would it be for me to just keep communicating with him on Skype or on FaceTime? When, when the real thing comes into your presence and the distance has been traveled where the real thing and is there, then you don't, you don't need the, the shadow. You don't need the type. I mean, it, it would just be foolishness. It would be silly. My brother's in the other room and we're staying in the same house, but yet instead of talking face-to-face, we talk via Skype. That's what's being said here. Why would you draw near to God through the temple when the real thing has arrived in the person of Jesus. Therefore, the temple has been done away with. We don't need it anymore. It says in verse 4, actually, it makes this point from a a, a different angle. It says in verse 4 of chapter 8, Now, if Jesus were here on earth, then he could not be a priest at all, since there already are priests who are giving gifts according to the law. You see what he's saying here? There are priests here on earth that are making sacrifices and gifts and offerings, but we don't need another model, a little sampling of heaven here on earth. What we need is heaven and earth to come back together, and we need somebody to represent us in heaven, and that has happened through Jesus Christ. You have access to heaven's space through Jesus, and therefore we don't need the temple. I think this is one of the reasons when we look at church history, why Christians were called atheists. Why Jews rejected Christian believers, persecuted them, and put them to death. Dick Lucas is a pastor in England. I think he's 90 now, old guy. In his teaching through the book of Hebrews, he imagines this conversation. Imagine with me. A Roman citizen and a Christian. They're neighbors, they meet. The Roman citizen starts to find out a little bit about this Christian realizes that he has some strange teachings and beliefs. The Roman citizen asks, so I hear you have a new religion. Interesting. So where's your temple? The Christian responds, well, you see, we don't, we don't have a temple. What? You don't have a temple? What, what kind of religion is this? You don't have a temple. And the Christian says, well, well, technically, we do have a temple. Jesus' body is our temple but, but it's not like the temple that you're thinking of, like a building and a structure with stones and you go inside of it and make sacrifices. We, we don't have one of those. Jesus' body is that temple. Okay, this is different. Well, if you have no temple and Jesus' body is your temple, where do priests go to do their offerings and sacrifices? 
well, you see, we don't have priests either. What? No priests? Seriously, what kind of religion is this? Christian says, well, technically speaking, we do have a priest. Jesus is our priest, but he's in heaven, and he is now interceding for us. He is, he is now mediating for us like a priest would in a temple. Oh, man, this is really strange, the Roman citizen says. How are you going to make gifts, sacrifices, and have God accept you and forgive you if you don't have a temple, you don't have a priest, and they're off somewhere in heaven? The Christian says, well, that's the thing. We, we don't even need to make sacrifices. We, we don't need to appease God and, and bring gifts to him to make him forgive us. Actually, we don't, we don't do that ever. Oh, my goodness. At this point, he either gasps, <gasps> no, you didn't, or he gets angry. I have never heard anything like this before, he might say. Now tell me, what kind of religion is this? And the Christian responds, well, you see, in that sense, it's really not a religion at all. Because Jesus did not come on the earth to give us another religion, or even, you could say, a better religion, or an improvement of a religion. No, no, you see, Jesus came, suffered, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he could bring us to God, into his favor. I think that's a very helpful way for you to think about what could be happening in the early century as they wrestled and grasped the truths here in Hebrews chapter 8, 9, and 10. Christianity is not the end of religion only. It is the opposite of religion. It is like an anti-religion in the sense of what the first century people would have thought. An absolute contradiction. And what do I mean by that? All religions, I think, when you look at them, have two basic common denominators. They believe in some sort of higher power, ultimate being, some divine God. That's one idea. And that science and modern explanations just, they, there's just something you can't explain. There's a mystery. Secondly, all religions seem to have some sort of gap or distance between God and this higher power and us. And there's a gap, a, a, a barrier that needs gone over, a, 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 a bridge that needs crossed, some, some sort of mountain that needs climbed. There's all sorts of different ways people have talked about it, but these are the two basic essentials really to every religion that you've ever heard. There's a God, and there's a gap. It seems obvious when we look at religions like this that they all agree on this matter, but what they disagree on is how, how do you bridge the gap, and, and who's the God that you eventually are bridging the gap to? See, this is where religions get all kinds of different answers, ideas, philosophies, and truths. And as we know, some of them teach that sacrifices and offerings are the way to bridge the gap. Others will emphasize the idea of your moral code and the way you live your life, while others will emphasize rituals, rites, incantations, prayers, or meditations. Whatever it is, there's a variety of answers to say, okay, here's the God, the enlightenment, the nirvana, the higher power, and then here's us. And here's the steps to get over that gap. Sometimes when religions are founded, they might say, we have the truth and we're pointing to the truth. And, and a few times you have founders of religion say, I'm the ultimate truth teller and I'm pointing you to the ultimate truth. Think of Gandhi, think of Buddha, think of Muhammad, 
in different religions to say, I am the founding teacher of this religious understanding, and I am the ultimate teacher with the ultimate truth that leads you to God. But never can you think of any time where a religion has said, I am not just the ultimate teacher teaching you to the ultimate truth. I am the ultimate truth. I am the ultimate being. See, friends, if we search far and wide and long, we will realize that there is no religion that makes this claim, well, except one, if you want to call it that. Christianity says that Jesus Christ is a person who is ultimate reality. He is the God that you're searching and longing. And he not only is the ultimate end goal, but he also is the means, the bridge, the gap, the barrier, the way up the mountain. Jesus provides both the ultimate end and the means to get there. Have you read through the gospel stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? And notice that Jesus says things like, before Abraham ever was, I am. Ultimate reality. That's me. Do you realize that Jesus would say things like, your sins are forgiven. And again, there would be a big gasp in the room. <gasps> no, he didn't just say that. Sometimes they wouldn't even say it out loud. Sometimes they would just think it in their minds. There is no chance that this guy just said, your sins are forgiven. You can't say that unless two things. One, especially if you're in a Jewish context like Jesus was. One, you'd have to be God to grant forgiveness of sins. And two, you'd have to offer a sacrifice to a priest in a temple. We're not in a priest. You're not a priest. You're not offering a sacrifice, and we're not in a temple. How can you just make some random, your sins are forgiven in someone's house? These are the stories we find all through the Gospels. Jesus saying these sort of claims and by making these claims, by both saying that he is the ultimate reality to which everything is pointing to, but also that he provides the means of forgiveness to bridge that gap, means that the temple and the sacrificial system and the whole old covenant law that was based on in the Jewish faith is done away with. It's the end of religion. It's the anti-religion. It's a person, not a religion. Jesus did not just say, hey, I'm the God from on top of the mountain. Come climb up toward me. He says, I'm the God from the top of the mountain, and I have come down to you. I will bridge the gap by coming the long distance down to your pitiful, sinful state. I will meet you right where you're at, and I will bring you up to God myself. Only Christianity makes that sort of claim. Friend, I want to ask does your life reflect that you believe that religion has been done away with in Jesus Christ? Or are you still absorbed in a religion mindset? Does it have any effect on how you live every day? In fact, you'll know this morning if you're a Christian, if you get this basic fundamental reality. That because Jesus died on a cross for sins, providing the means of the gap between us and God, shortening that distance so that you and I can now worship and draw near and come near into God's very holy presence because of his ascension into heaven after he rose again from the dead and defeated death and conquered sin. Do you believe that? And has it had any effect in your life? Another preacher from England, I guess this is the message where I quote preachers from England, Martin Lloyd-Jones 
He has passed. He is not 90. He has passed away. And in his little book called, well, it's kind of a medium-sized book. It's called Spiritual Depression. How to Overcome Spiritual Depression. The dark days of your soul when you're, is there any hope? He gives all sorts of wonderful, helpful counsel. But in that book, he makes this statement. He says, when I'm trying to help people understand what it means to be a Christian, especially when they're suffering great sorrow, to make it quite practical, I give them a simple test. I explain to them again the way of Jesus. And then I ask them, now are you ready to say that you are in fact a Christian? And then when I notice that they hesitate, I say, what is the matter? Why are you hesitating? So often the response I get is, well, I just don't feel like I'm good enough. I don't think I'm ready to say I'm a Christian now. And at once I know that I have been wasting my breath. They are still thinking in terms of themselves. They have to do it. And this sounds very modest to most. Well, I don't think I'm good enough. But it is in fact a very denial of the Christian faith altogether. The essence of the Christian faith is to say that Christ is good enough and that because Christ is good enough, I am in him. And since I am in him, I am with the Father. As long as you are thinking about yourselves, saying, I'm not good enough, oh, I'm not good enough, then you deny God, you deny the gospel, you deny the essence of the Christian faith, and friend, you will never be happy in this world. Friend, are you ready to call yourself a Christian? Have you heard the way that Jesus Christ has provided, the the bridge over the gap, the way up the mountain, and that he, in fact, himself is the ultimate goal toward that? Or are you still trying to climb up the mountain yourself? I urge you, I plead with you, consider Christianity's claim and lay down all of your efforts to make your way to God because realize that's like looking at a FaceTime screen when Jesus can stand right in front of you, when God's very presence can be known and felt now. For those of you who would call yourselves Christians and feel pretty confident that in fact you are, members of Embassy Church, for example, I want us to close with three specific areas, three kind of practical areas that this truth, that there's, there's no religion because there's no temple, there's no sacrifice, there's, there's no way for us to make these steps and then make our way up to God. No, in fact, that bridge has been made in Jesus. First, I want you to think about the area of your life How do you handle criticism? Whether it's people that love you and tell you nicely, hey, friend, can I sit down and talk with you? I have something that I've observed that I want to help you with. And then they go on and give you some criticism. Now, that's nice and loving, and I would encourage us that we would have those kind of conversations. But more often than not, we don't get it in the loving, nice, sweet fashion. It's, hey, stop doing this, you know? And people lash out when they're, being bothered by us. But I ask you, are you quick to anger? Or are you quick to listen? Are you quick to hear that maybe there's in fact some truth in that little bite of criticism? Religious people can't handle criticism. If your worldview is wrapped up in the idea that there is still a way for me to reach God and I then have to be a good person, Well, then when someone criticizes your goodness and your character, well, then now your whole world unravels. You get angry. 
You lash back at them. Well, I've been noticing things about you too. Interesting you bring that up. Of course, we would never say that, would we? But see, Christian people shouldn't. Christian people shouldn't respond in that manner because we should see that Jesus put an end to all of our identity being wrapped up in our performance and our goodness. There's no need for us to perform to try and reach God in his temple and in his, up his mountain. In fact, Christians should be the people who are so happy to welcome criticism in their lives because they know that it is a reminder of how they became a Christian to begin with. Have you thought about that? None of you in this room are Christians because you were born into a Christian family. Just a few days ago, we were in Louisville, Kentucky with a few people of our church, and we were at a conference that was helping us learn how to explain the gospel of Jesus to Muslims. And when we were at this conference, one of the striking statements they said that is quite helpful when talking to Muslim people is that all Christian people are converts. All of them have to be converted. Doesn't matter who you are, where you were born, which family you grew up in, which church you attended. And for a Muslim, that's, that's absurd. But it's true. As Jesus says in John chapter 3, you must be born again. You must come to the realization that you're a sinner. That you have evil in your heart and that God is going to judge you for it. That's criticism, friends. You are a Christian if you are in fact a Christian because you received the criticism of God's holy law. And you responded with, yeah, that's actually true. And because that's true, I'm hopeless and helpless. But if someone was a good preacher, they said, friends, there's hope and there is help. It is found in Jesus Christ. And so you cling to Jesus. That's Christianity 101, friends. So why are we getting all upset about criticism? Don't you already know the sinful state for which you were saved in to begin with? And that increasingly you're not ever going to be perfect? Increasingly, you just hopefully grow a little bit. And in fact, it's those little bits of criticism that can help us grow. Well, what a beautiful church this would be. Not the building, not the exterior temple structures, but the church, the people. If we could give and receive godly criticism, I pray that we would. Secondly, what about your motivations in your heart? If you understand that religion has ended, that the temple has been torn down, and that there's no need for us to try and go into God's space, but that God has already taken us into his space, it means that it changes the way you think and do everything. You know, it, it kind of goes like this. Religious mindset worldview says, I obey so that I get accepted. I bring sacrifices and offerings into the temple and worship so that God forgives me. If I don't obey, if I don't do these things, God will not be pleased with me. This is the way religious people think. And you could use Christianity as your religion, even though you believe that Jesus has done away with the temple, and still be trapped in this mindset that I will obey these, these certain moral things, and if I obey these things, God will be pleased with me. Oh, Christian friend, non-Christian friend, whoever you are this morning, realize that Christianity has a whole different way of thinking. Because Jesus did away with the temple, because Jesus did away with the sacrifices, because Jesus' blood is sufficient, there is nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing, that you can do to make God more pleased with you right now. You're covered in the righteous blood of Jesus. Can he be any more pleased and happy with that? No. 
it would be a mockery of his blood and the cross to say otherwise. Therefore, if God has already accepted me, I obey. Not because I need to be accepted, but because I am already accepted, loved, cherished. If he already loves me, I don't need to try and think he will love me more if I'm some better future version of me in the next year or two. Has your motivations been changed for obedience and holiness and godliness? You know, just a couple weeks ago, I was pleading with you all. Let the gospel truths of hope and comfort mesh well with imperative commands to be holy and godly. This is one of the ways they mesh well together. God has so loved you in the person of Jesus Christ that he did not spare anything, even his own son. And if that's not the greatest demonstration of love, then I don't know what is. And if he loved you that way, then obey him. Don't you just want to obey him now? How beautiful and amazing is this God's love for you? Lastly, thirdly, the gospel of Jesus that replaces a temple, that does away with this religious mindset, it changes the way we get criticized, it changes the way our motivations in our heart, and lastly, it changes the way we look at others. You see, religious people often are troubled with looking down on other people. It's kind of like goes hand in hand with being a religious person. If you need to perform a certain way in order to appease God, and those performances are the litmus test for your acceptance by God or, or whatever the religious system is, well, then you're going to look down on anybody else that's not doing what you're doing. That's not as good as you are. That's not making as many sacrifices or as good of sacrifices as you are for this God. But Christian people, we should not be looking down on other people. Christian people should be the last people to look down on others. The church should be a place where anyone can feel comfortable and safe and open and vulnerable to share anything and not feel like, am I going to be judged here? Like, I got some darkness up in this heart, some deep past sins that I don't want to share, and I'm afraid to be exposed. The church should be the place where if you share those things, you say, friend, those things might be deep and dark and sad and awful and painful, but God, his grace is deeper and wider, and I am in the same boat with you. Is that the way we're responding with one another? Or is there this constant hedging and looking out and, and seeing how I'm better than other people. Friends, the church of Jesus Christ should be known by its humility, by the way that we do not look down on others because we're all kneeling before a cross that saves us. If we look down on others, it would be denying the very grace that God has given us to begin with. Did you see how that works? You say, why, why aren't you as good as me looking down and judging other people, do you even get it? Do you even get what it means to be a Christian? So think through those things this week. Think through them as we study this mini-series of the end of religion. Jesus Christ's death, resurrection, ascension into heaven, his going forward into heaven and bringing earth into heaven means that the temple is done away with and that religion, step by step, is falling and crumbling down. Next week, we'll look at how the sacrificial system 
has been done away with because of Jesus' once and for all sacrifice. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you so much for this wonderful truth about who you are and what you have done. We want to thank you for Jesus' work on the cross, his blood that was shed, and its sufficiency for us. We want to thank you in particular for the body, the physical, earthly body of Jesus that replaces the temple, the sacred space of God. Thank you, God, that we can see in Jesus the ultimate reality of what the temple is pointing to all along. Thank you that these truths have implications for the way we live every single day. And our prayer is that the gospel of Jesus would radically undermine our efforts of performance mindset. Of appeasing God by our good works, of proudly looking down on others. God, would you by your Holy Spirit awaken us to the truth, soften our hearts, and help us to see that Jesus is in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father on high. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to remain seated as we sing the power of the cross. And as we remain seated, we're going to have the ushers pass forward the bread and cup. And as they gather these elements, this is what the new covenant, the new way of thinking about religion or the anti-religion, Christianity, we are to have regular reminders that Christ's body, the temple, Christ's blood, the sacrifice, has completed and finished the course that the Old Testament sacrificial system was pointing to. So friend, I have asked you several different forms or manners. Are you a Christian this morning? Do you believe the gospel that has just been preached to you? Have you repented of your sins and turned to Jesus? If you are, then we would encourage you to take this bread and take this cup and join with us in drawing near to God. The conclusion of this section in chapter 8, 9, and 10, the conclusion draws into this summary statement in chapter 10. Therefore, since we now have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and the living way that he opened up through the curtain that is through his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. The way you can draw near now is through Christ's body and his blood, and we will do that in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. So hold your cups. We'll sing this song and meditate on these lyrics about the power of the cross. And then when we have finished the song, I'll get up and we'll take the elements together.